Welcome to our podcast series, Who's Universal, which we are hosting in the run-up to the White West Conference at Haus der Kulturen der Welt. The conference is co-organized by Anna Teixeira Pinto, Anselm Franke, and myself, Kader Atia. Our guest today is Paola Baqueta. Paola Baqueta is Professor of Gender and Women Studies at University of California, Berkeley. She is also co-chair of the Political Conflict, Gender and People's Rights Project based at the Center for Race and Gender and has been adv advisory board member of UC Berkeley Center for Right-Wing Studies since its inception. Her research interests include, among other political conflict, transnational feminist and queer theory, as well as decolonial and postcolonial theory. Among her numerous publications are Global Raciality Empire, Postcoloniality, Decoloniality, co-edited together with Sunaina Maira and Howard Wynant in 2019, as well as Gender in the Hindu Nation from 2004, and the co-edited book entitled Right-Wing Woman from Conservatives sorry, from conservative to extremist around the world, published in 2002. Welcome, Paola. Paola, when we had our last meeting about a couple of things, we were speaking um, about activism and theory, and you told me different interesting things. I would, I would like to continue to share with our listener here. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, to uh, uh, ask you a couple of questions that are not like following uh, an order, but much more the, the tone of our conversation. The decolonial thinking in Europe, and particularly in France, did not come from the university, but from the streets. In 2008, in Paris, during the March for Dignity demonstration, La Marche pour la Dignité, the first use of decolonial word was, public, pub, was, was publicly claimed. Since then, since it started from the street, the reactionary attitude from most of the power representatives, su such as the academia, has been to oppose to the decolonial thinking a criminalization argument. I would like to know first, does this surprise you? that the institution is against any movement of thinking which come from the street? And could you compare this with your experience in the US situation in America? Um, first of all, thank you, uh, Kader, and thank you to the entire committee that um, invited me to speak. I'm delighted to be here. Uh, about this relationship between the streets and the academy, I think that almost every in the United States, all of the um, most radical, theoretical, critical uh, studies have, they come from the streets. So for example, we have in the United States, um, African-American studies, ethnic studies, uh, gender and women's studies that all came out of movements. It wasn't the institutions that decided that these were important, but instead social movements demanded them. 
So the, the relationship in the United States to these kinds of um, critical theories of, I would say there are many different kinds of critical theories, of course, but I'm talking about decolonial theory and critical race theory and um, transnational decolonial feminisms and things like that. They, um, the institution has absorbed them, but generally what we can notice is that they are then reconfigured so that they become less threatening and less critical. So we have, in fact, in the US, a lot of scholarship now on exactly that process. I'm thinking of the work of Grace Chang or um, Rod Ferguson on this phenomena of uh, so-called diversity management, which is a way of bringing these kinds of studies that are really extremely critical into the realm of the university and kind of defanging them, um, making them compatible with, with capitalism, with colonialism, because you know in the United States, we are in a colonial situation. This is a settler colony. Um, it's built on the genocide of native people who are still here. Um, and, and most often not recognized. I live in uh, Berkeley, which is Huishan, according to the Ohlone, whose, whose land this is. And the Ohlone are not a recognized tribe with the US government. So I would say that I am unsurprised, completely unsurprised by what is going on in France for many reasons. One, because of course I lived in France for a long time and I, and I know <laughs> where all of this kind of come from, comes from, but also because it is a global trend of institutions absorbing parts of the movements that would otherwise topple them and then reconfiguring some of these studies, uh, trying to reconfigure them to make them acceptable, to make them compatible, in fact, with uh, you know, with the powers, with the relations of power that, that are contextual. So it's fine, for example, to have uh, native studies at, at UC Berkeley until, unless, and unless there's a demand to rematriate the land, and then that becomes a problem because the, you know, it implies the university would need to give up land. It, there is a, um, as long as things don't threaten the powers that be, they are allowed to, <laughs> to coexist. So, so if I understood, and it's very interesting, uh, the process of um, the institu institutionalization of movements, uh, feminist, uh, decolonial, uh, by the academia when they absorb, when they absorb this movement, um, is weakening them, is making them less uh, active? Yeah, I mean, the streets, as I said, the streets are much more radical than, uh, than what's happening in the institutions. And sometimes we have the opportunity within the institutions to theorize what's going on in the streets, um, but it generally comes first from the streets. I'll give an example, within queer movements, there's, for example, um, a whole notion of homonationalism, which is about how movements that are otherwise very radical become recuperated by 
uh, you know, by the state, actually by the US government. And um, so that is an example of something where it's possible to think a little bit beyond the confines. But in general, I would say that when things start to uh, look like they might threaten the threatened <laughs> a bit too much or they are quickly either stomped out or reconfigured in ways that make them uh, acceptable. And we've seen almost all of the units that I've been involved with have been actually threatened with, with closure. Every time there's a, an economic crisis, uh, it becomes the pretext for why certain units need to be defunded. That's been my experience at Berkeley. Mm -hmm. yeah. We and that can, for example, we had a problem with the Center for Race and Gender. I'm a, a I've been a board member of the Center for Race and Gender for quite a long time, and we had uh, a battle there. We it's also our my department that I'm in, which is the Department of Gender and Women's Studies, was not allowed to hire for 13 years, and we lost some faculty members because of uh, retirement. So these are all very fragile within the, I would say that they are fragile within the university in the first place, because always subjected to a kind of uh, uh, threat that we don't find the big departments uh, subjected to. Um, thank you, Paola, it's very interesting. Uh, as the streets are more radical, uh, than the university, what could be a way to radicalize the university? Would it be to open wider its doors to non-graduated students, to association, to activists uh, without charging them, to abolish its authority, to decentralize its infrastructure? What could we hope, particularly I'm asking you this, uh, Paola, because you are also located in a geography that is so the so-called, let's say, Silicon Valley, where a form of uh, learning through techno-liberal uh, decentralized uh, pattern is also, I would say, another threat that you have to be aware. Do you know what I mean? Does it make sense? Yeah, I would say our, you know, the universities in the United States are all privatized to even those that are that are so-called public to a degree that is just not the way that things are run, run in Europe. So uh, for example, you know, it, I mean, it's tuition based and the tuition is very high everywhere, including where um, it's supposedly low, just in relation to, uh, to Europe and especially in relation to France. I studied in France and my tuition was hardly anything. So it was more open um, in France, I would say, to people from different economic um, sectors, whereas in the US, it's, uh, it's, it's more closed, it's more privileged, and it is, and that's a real problem. Uh, what to do to change it, I would say it would really require a complete shakeup. I mean, it is being, the, the, the it, it would require just a complete reorganization of the university. I think that first of all, the university need, would need to be decolonized in terms of its curriculum. Um, it, we have a colonial curriculum within the university and um, it is, 
uh, we, it would need to be decolonized in so many different ways, even spatially. Uh, I taught a course and I, I teach this course regularly on colonialism and sexuality. And one of the assignments that I give to the students is to look at our university and see how is it um, colonial. And because, you know, I wanted, I want to start not with the world out there, but actually with where we are in a, in a colony in, within the US, it's a settler colony. So um, one of the things that the students always come up with initially is, oh, all the buildings are named for colonizers or for, um, you know, people who own slaves or were in, in some way. And that, of course, is very important, but there are some very deep things that they learn throughout the semester that are um, that go beyond just the naming. I mean, one is, and, and in particular, I think it's really about the curriculum. And until we have curricular changes, until we have an open university that's not privatized, um, we have, we're, we're going to have to deal with all these problems. Thank you. I'd like now to, to jump a little bit to another location that you know uh, very well, Paola. So my question will be a bit long because I need to map the, 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 the topics. Um, it's about the current situation in India. The philosopher Barbara Stiegler, the daughter of Bernard Stiegler, excellent philosopher, recently published an essay called About Democracy in Pandemic Time based on Richard Orton from the magazine The Lancet. This is not a pandemic, she says. It is a syndemic, a disease caused by social inequality and by ecological crisis at large. The Lancet, the magazine, she said, explain us that if we don't change our economic, political and social systems, and if we care only about stopping the virus, this virus as a, a biological problem, there will be more sanitary crisis. So how do you see the situation in India, a society that you've been researching and living, which went into its political, a, a political extreme uh, between of course, fascism and neoliberalization, where all the public health infrastructures that used to incarnate the so-called modern project of, uh, of Nehru became totally bankrupt. Today, we know that people are looking for oxygen. Um, yes, I think, well, first of all, India's problems today really date from quite a long history. They are not uh, new and they don't only date from uh, 2014 when the BJP came into power. There's a, there are issues of caste that predate all of this and that are there right now and that have only recently started to get more mainstream uh, press. They've been, they had been suppressed for much prior to that, including prior to 2014, of course. Um, the, I think also there is, there is a, a long-standing caste uh, and class class issues, but there are, but also Hindu nationalism, which looks like from outside of India, it often looks like it just 
appeared, you know, in 2014 or appeared quite recently. Um, the party that Modi represents, the BJP, ha has a very has a hundred year long history. So they have um, had one about a hundred years to develop. Um, the party itself doesn't, but the movement beyond, behind it does. You know, beginning uh, with the Hindu Mahasabha, then the the, the uh, Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, and um, so you know they, these these way pre-exist the current uh, COVID crisis. The current crisis, of course, is very much a function of capitalism, I mean, and, and of colonialism as well, that, that disarticulated the Indian economy that, um, and both of them disarticulated the Indian economy to arrive at a situation where we are now. But I think that also um, this government has done everything to, to cover up the situation of how many uh, deaths are happening and until it became so obvious because people, because with the cremation fires, uh, people are, I mean, I, there are reports of the, of the ashes falling on people's uh, homes and terraces and in the streets and everything. It's just unavoidable right now. It's a situation of terrifying catastrophe right now for everyone. And um, and of course, the most subaltern of subjects are in the absolute worst situation as usual. So yes, I mean, certainly, I think we, we need to look much deeper at the um, roots of these problems that they, and that they are, they predate colonialism and they are and colonialism aggravated everything and disarticulated in a very dramatic way, and that um, that you know there's an, and and that to me is is an enormous problem. That's and and it, it unless it is dealt with, I don't think that it's going to that there's going to be much change in the situation. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And. Um... It's uh, it's uh, it's also interesting, of course, to 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 link uh, the uh, capitalist and colonialist uh, responsibility of this uh, um, so-called pandemic uh, to other, of course, to let's say worldwide situation. Everywhere, the public health system has been completely neglected by previous government. From in France, for instance, from left to right, in Germany too, and then the. What we are facing is more an, over, an, an overwhelming situation for the health public systems, rather than a very uh, uh, aggressive and uh, and severe, uh, I mean, uh, uh, virus. Um, I just want to to continue on on this conversation we had on Hindu nationalism because I remember that when we met, uh, I would say the. What really fascinated me in your own research and work and experience there is the link between uh, colonialism and, and fascism. For instance, when the British arrived in India and they started to really like uh, almost, of course, criticize and mock the, the figure of the, of, the, of the Indian male uh, uh, in, uh, in the society and started to, to, to sell them the idea of... Uh, of uh, Almost fascist, strong, uh, authoritarian, uh, or viril. I don't have viril. I don't know how to define it. Uh, Indian uh, uh, male, and um, 
and 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 that what what basically the national Hinduism has embraced so far, no? Yes, exactly. Um, they, I did a study of uh, you know Hindu nationalism and gender, which culminated in that book, um, Gender in the Hindu Nation, in which I really went into sort of the discourse of the main Hindu nationalist movement, which is the RSS for short, Rashtriya Swayam Sevak Sangh. And what I found there was that they, um, you know, they, they w took up the colonial discourse on gender, on masculinity, on femininity, and they uh, reworked it and drew on some uh, Hindu religious texts to try and justify a machoization you know of the hindu male so what's really interesting about that is that there are thousands of hindu texts to choose from so of course they could find some that um you know that worked for their purposes and through a process of selectivity they managed to you know construct this ideal image of the hindu nationalist male um, and also of hindu nationalist women although I will say that there is a split between the men's organization and the women's organization, and they don't construct these identities in the same way. And I called that sort of, you know, fractionalization for unity because the Hindu nationalist women would never accept the incredibly macho version of Hindu nationalist men that, um, that, the, that the male organization put forth, nor would they accept the uh, kind of, you know, back to the kitchen kind of notion of women that the Hindu nationalist men have for women, because the women's organization, which was founded in 1936, I'll say the men's organization was founded in 1925, and then they founded a women's wing in 1936. So we're talking about really a very long period of time to develop these ideologies, right? Um, but they are deeply impacted, deeply influenced by colonial discourse and by, especially by colonial values. So there's an epistemic problem there um, where colonial categories, colonial logics, colonial presuppositions are all taken up within Hindu nationalism. And then uh, they, through a process of selectivity, find uh, Hindu sources to support this kind of ideological construction. So, and those are operative today. And they have different models. It's quite complex. There's a whole configuration. So there are different models. So the ideal Hindu male is um, a, someone who's, you know, very, who's virile and uh, in the sense of just being hyper-masculine, a warrior type. And then the leader, I found that each in each case, the leader is looked at and is in a more bi-gendered way. So that is an, a kind of a, a reinsertion of uh, both masculinity and femininity in the figure of the leader. And in fact, um, the, the founder was referred to by the second leader as Ma Bap, which means mother, father. So they were, so he, so he was actually bi-gendered. It's quite complex, the gender politics of, of Hindu nationalism, because in fact, 
prior to Hindu nationalism, the gender politics are much are quite complex. And like in most places across the globe, um, where the colonialism came in and and actually imposed a whole gender system, first of all, a binary gender system so that there's only male, female, and nothing else, even though in India you can't really ignore the presence of transgender subjects, the Hinjara who are there, you know, for thousands of years, or other kinds of genders. And um, but colonialism came in and imposed its own gender configuration in India and everywhere else, just about across the globe. I mean, we have a whole bunch of research. I would refer people to Maria Lugones's classic article um, on the coloniality of gender, but also there's just a ton of scholarship that shows that throughout the globe, this kind of colonial imposition of gender. Very interesting. And uh, talking about colonialism and fascism in India, I was always interested by your work, which built a parallel between colonialism, fascism and Islamophobia. Islamophobia in Hindu nationalism in relation with what is happening today in Kashmir and the Indian citizenship that has been removed, or I don't know if it's still a project from Modi, from a Muslim uh, citizen, Indian Muslim citizen. How do you link this Islamophobia that is through colonialism? So the, the, actually at the beginning of Hindu nationalism, the it, there is a the British policy of divide and rule, which meant you know dividing and ruling Hindus and Muslims uh, primarily. So there was a um, in 1905 the British partitioned Bengal into you know into a, a so-called Hindu part and a so-called Muslim part. Um, in the the following year. The, the All Indian Muslim League was founded in 1906. And then um, they created, the British created a separate electorate in 1909. All this was kind of a catalyst for um, Hindu nationalists to, to get together. Um, by the way, the people actually opposed the partition of, um, of Bengal. But through divide and rule, it the British managed to construct the Hindus and Muslims as though they were two distinct and separate communities and also that they were um, e each other's enemies. It just happened because of, through a variety of, uh, of mechanisms. And so, and Hindu nationalists came in and played that game and from the beginning they were anti-Muslim. So we have, again, a long history of them developing a form of Hindu nationalism that relies on the on Muslims as a negative backdrop. Why do Hindus have to get together because they are Muslims? Well, Muslims were always such a minority numerically and also a minority sociologically in the sense of being an oppressed minority. So, um, you know, Muslims in at that during that period in India, and the, and so they. Um, you know, Muslims will make up about 15, 12 to 15% of, of the Indian population. So that's not huge, right? And 
So from that time on, and then all throughout the reason, I mean, the BJP really played up all of this they in order to gain power. And for example, they had this Ramjanma Bhumi uh, movement in 1984, which was about, you know, this um, temple converted a mosque, a temple that had been, they claimed was converted to a mosque and then they wanted to claim it to turn it back into a temple. So there's there, it's a whole struggle around space and around religious space. Um, and then they, um, in 2002, there was uh, the Gujarat violence, you know, where, where Modi was directly involved because he was chief minister at the time. Um, and of course he was absolved by his own people, but there are lots of reports that show how Hindu nationalists configured these, um, you know, drummed up Hindu violence against Muslims. And, um, and so it was, it's a, actually a pogrom more than just violence. And so the, so Hindu nationalism actually, it, 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 it only exists with, with Muslims as a negative backdrop, you see. You don't, India is a pluralist country. It has just about every religion found anywhere in the world. You can find it in India. And um, it's, you know, it was originally conceptualized to be a pluralist, a religiously pluralist, so-called secular nation. However, as we know, secularism means different things in different places. Laïcité in France is not the same as secularism in India, for example, in um, in India, secularism means that the state respects and protects all religions. It doesn't mean that there's a, necessarily a separation between state and um, the state and religion. Uh, and whereas in France, laïcité means that you know there's a separation between the state uh, and religion is is in the private sphere. So. The, with lots of hypocrisy, of course, around <laughs> around that, because the um, in the United States, for example, it's supposed to be also a secular country, but we have "In God We Trust" on the dollar. We have a national Christmas tree. Why do we have a Christmas tree? Why do we have anything Christ or Christ Christian at all in the United States? So, you know. Anyway, the point is that there are many different versions of secularism in the world. And in India, the Hindu, Hindu nationalist, um, Hindu nationalists have set themselves up against Indian secularism. So Hindu nationalists, the Hindu nationalists as a movement, Hindu nationalism is more radically anti-Muslim in its articulation, but when the BJP the BJP version of it is less um, belligerent in that in that they feel that you know that they have they have different categories for Muslim that Muslims can belong to. So even the RSS has different categories that the Muslims can belong to. There's, for example, one image of Muslims that is the, the Muslim as foreign invader who came and invaded India. Then there's the that's upper caste Muslims, um, sorry, upper class Muslims. Then there's you know the Hindu Muslim, which is the Muslim the um, 
who who is not who is so-called secular, in other words, a Muslim who's not a practicing Muslim. Um, and then there is the um, Muslim as ex-Hindu convert, which is how they view the masses of Muslims who they claim were all converted by the sword, by you know these horrible Muslims who came in and converted them all. So there are three, these three different kinds of images of Muslims that the Hindu nationalists um, have, have constructed. And the main enemy for them, of course, is, the, is actually the people who are in, would be in competition with them who are the upper class or middle class Muslims and, um, and, and the practicing Muslims. So, so it's kind of, it's, it's rather, it's, you know, Hindu nationalism is dependent on its anti-Muslim uh, and anti-other discourse. And I would say that just about all, fa that's a characteristic of all fascisms. You know, they have to have an other uh, as a backdrop against which they, so have, they construct their, whatever it is, their nation or their community or their ethnic group. Mentioning the word fascism, which I, I got, do you mean that there is a real program against Muslim by Hindu nationalists? Yes, they, I mean they, you know, they there have they have the Gujarat riots, the which are called which actually are pogroms uh, from 2002 are a really good example of it has been called uh, the Gujarat genocide. It's been called the pogroms. Um, Yes, I think, I mean, there are many methods that Hindu nationalists have dreamed up in order to deal with Muslims. And one is, the is of course, elimination, but there's another, which is assimilation. So assimilation would mean to convert Muslims to Hinduism or to make sure that they're not, uh, you know, practicing Muslims. It's very interesting what you say, pa Paola Baketa, because... I can also not stop thinking about the theory, the French theory of the Great Replacement, which is a pure fantasy of this invasion of uh, of, of Islam. And uh, recently, I found an incredible um, advertisement about a far right uh, candidate in the east of France for the next election, and is is a, is a, is an Algerian. I know that with the decolonial the, 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 the in Algeria, there were Algerians supporting France. We called them Harki, Arki. But I was really like, whoa. And then I I I, I look at the chat and the people, the French, the far right people were saying, Oh, this is someone who has assimilated. That's great. So this we find this also in India, um, where there where if a Muslim they have a couple of high profile Muslims who are uh, part of their organization and they always have had at least one or two to put up there so that they could claim that they're not anti-Muslim because you know that would not be acceptable, especially for a political party, but also for a social movement that would like to recruit wide, widely. So they have a couple of people who they hold up and these happen to be for example, a Muslim who um, denounces other Muslims, who denounces, you know, sort of what has happened to, to Muslims. Um, they also have Muslims, for example, who are 
Sanskritists. In other words, they are very, they are just like very, very skilled in um, the high, the what is considered by uh, the Hindu nationalists to be the highest level of Hinduism. So they know Sanskrit and, you know, it's a, um, uh, it, and so therefore they are okay. And they are held up as, and then there are the, the ones who are actually collaborators and they're fine with, and I think that exists everywhere that there are collaborators and it's not just the Aki or the, or anyone, but everywhere. And we see, for example, even within the, uh, feminist world, there are these women who are who are from the, you know, from Islamic uh, country, Islamic majority countries, and they will denounce, you know, uh, Islam, and then be sort of um, taken in by the uh, by those who are denouncing and everything. So this is this is pretty common and. It serves a number of purposes. I mean, for, certainly for the people who are collaborators, it it serves their personal purposes. But for the organizations, it help it allows them to say, "Oh, you see, we're not anti-Muslim. We have these Muslim members, and they, um, you know, they're with us. So we're really not anti-Muslim. We only are against a certain kind of Muslim, which means, you know, um, basically, it's just." It, it's a way of articulating it so that it to make their movements uh, acceptable under certain conditions where they would not otherwise be acceptable. Yeah, so basically at that point, even if you have witnessed uh, uh, violence, a form of violence in, I remember uh, anti-riots, anti-Muslim riots in India, you do, uh, connect the uh, contemporary Islamophobia of India society to other Western societies, basically, particularly in this strategy of assimilation? Oh, I, I connect it in many ways. I mean, first of all, the after uh, September 11, 2001, it, it, that gave impetus to Hindu nationalism in India because we had in the United States, so much anti-Muslim discourse that that went from, you know, being relatively closeted into the public space massively, and there were all these attacks. Um, and the first person actually murdered after 9/11 in the United States was actually a Sikh and not a Muslim because they because there's so much ignorance that they could not distinguish between the two. So. Um, after 9-11, we started to see appear in Hindu nationalist discourse all this stuff about, um, you know, our little Osamas, our Osamas in India, you know. So they took up what was a transnational Islamophobic discourse coming mainly from the United States and flowing all over the world um, into, they took it up and it became this kind of common sense in the sense of Antonio Gramsci, where it just ended up supporting, being used by Hindu nationalists to support Islamophobia in India. So I think they reinforce each other and that there's no doubt in my mind that they're all interconnected. We do live in an interconnected world. And so while there are local contextual historical contextual situations, they 
they are they often draw from each other in order to construct these um you know the the to in order to construct their anti-other discourses. And right now it's an anti-Muslim uh, discourse. It's Islamophobic. And um, on the pretext of, you know, something that a handful of people have done, then it becomes like all Muslims, you know, are, so there's a generalization. Whereas in the United States, I, I want to really make this point that the majority of so-called terrorist acts, meaning violent acts against uh, civilians, they are perpetuated by straight white men, and the, the statistically, you know. But we, but there is no persecution of straight white men in the United States. They, um, you know, and so, but as soon as any Muslim or any other uh, figure from a subaltern community uh, does something. And of course, we have all kinds of people in, in all of our communities. And so things do happen. Then it becomes a generalized uh, stereotype of the entire community. So it, and it doesn't correspond to reality. So that's, uh, I think that is something that we can find transnationally. And it is something that really travels um, into places where 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 it can where there can be a selectivity a process of selectivity from sort of global um, media flows and global discourses so the global there is a global islamophobia discourse that that um, that was sort of constructed around 911 for the United States but because of the place of empire, you know, in the world, and these are relations of power. We There can be a, a discourse constructed, for example, in some small country somewhere, um, and it doesn't become global. So it came from the U.S., and it flowed outwards because of the kinds of relations of power transnationally, and it was conveniently taken up in India by Hindu nationalists who then used it and really overtly used it. They didn't use it just covertly. For example, I mean, this, this phrase, our little Osamas, used by Hindu nationalists to refer to the Osama bin Laden uh, issues. So, and that, that then became salient in India for a while. And so that's the way that things, that I think that there are definite transnational connections. Other transnational connections are around these actual figures who go from one country to another, who set up things like Steve Bannon, for example, um, in on the right in the United States, who has worked with uh, the Bolsonaro government, worked with Modi, and who has set up in Brussels something for the European Union. And you know they're all connected basically, and they know what they're doing. If we follow some key figures and see what they're setting up, you know, in France, in Italy, in uh, Belgium, in uh, Brazil, training people in Brazil, you know, the right wing, then we see how these are all interconnected. Thank you. It's very interesting to to continue with this, uh, the, the way the far right has uh, 
never stop to reorganize and reinvent itself. And we know, as you mentioned, uh, that Steve Bannon, for instance, is the, the one of the billionaires who financed this uh, very obscure and uh, and fascist network. In France, by the way, is also supporting the University of Marion Maréchal Le Pen in the city of Lyon. It's interesting because my next and last question is about also what happens in our side in terms of uh, um, uh, organization. So our next anti-fascist conference called this time Who's Universal refer to the complex thinking of colonialism, universalism, also of regimes of governance of hierarchies that work in all human groups. You once told me that collaboration between independentist movements and feminist movement in the past did happen much more than today. Like, like for instance, the Puerto Rico independentist movement and feminist movement. Would you think that today this is not happening or and groups are more willing to separatism than aut autonomy? Well, I, when we were discussing this, I was referring to the 1970s um, and especially to how some of this has been edited out of the historiography of feminist movements in the 1970s in order to allow feminist movements in the 1970s to appear to be these sort of really mainstream uh, white and other, you know, white middle-class straight feminisms. However, that was really, that's really not what, it, what actually happened. And right now there is archival work that's being done to, um, you know, to demonstrate what actually really, really happened. I, this goes, brings us, of course, first of all, back to our problem of when things enter the academy and when people who were not a part of the social movements are actually writing the history of the movement and they, and they end up uh, erasing a lot of what, what, what went on in the movements. So in the 1970s, um, the Puerto Rican independence movement was quite strong and um, it you know quite organized and feminists were involved in the movement who were Puerto Rican and also feminists who were in solidarity with, the, with, the, with it. Um, the independence movement in Puerto Rico, for example, has existed for um, a really long time. It began in the first revolts by the Taino, who uh, indigenous people of the island. And you know, there's a, there's one that's recorded in 1511, for example. Um, there were also um, revolts against the um, you know revolts against the Spanish rulers that were uh, recorded. And revolts against, of course, the U.S. government, which has had Puerto Rico as a territory, and so um, the during the 1970s, at least, and prior to that, probably, but in the 1970s, I I know for a fact there were there was quite a bit of solidarity with the Puerto Rican independence movement, also with the Native American movement, um, etc. And that is because also there are. There are there were feminists in all of these movements who are Puerto Rican or Native American and and you know who were in two movements at the same time that tended to be um, what what went on. This has of course all been erased. It's now being 
uh, uncovered, etc. Um, the that's you know basically uh, today. You asked about today. What is happening today? I think that currently, at just like in a prior phase, there have always been several feminist movements, always. Um, there was always been one that's really reformist and, you know, let's have a woman for president and not think about the fact that this is a colony or, you know, that this is a, a, a country of slavery and post-slavery institutions, etc. So there's always been this conservative wing, in fact, of the feminist movement. And, and then there's also been, it, there's a whole uh, gamut of things. And so a whole range of things. So there's also always been the very radical anti-imperialist, anti-colonial, anti-imperialist uh, wing of feminism. I myself have been involved in uh, groups that, uh, that, that denounced uh, colonialism and imperialism from the very beginning. So I was in, for example, this group called Dyke Tactics when I was very young and it was in the 1970s. And we began just about all of our statements with a statement against uh, settler colonialism, basically against genocide, against um, the institution of slavery that on which the country was founded. And then from there, we would go on to our, and you know, the exploitation of, of workers, especially women workers, um, both in the workforce and outside of it, doing uh, unpaid reproductive work, etc. So, you know, that highly critical wing always that existed in, in the 1970s. Now, what about today? I think that today we're finding a, a similar kind of configuration. There are some feminist movements that are extremely anti-imperial um, against racism, um, against capitalism, and there are some that are really main, you know, really conservative feminisms who even today we find even though some of the most right-wing women who imagine themselves as feminists, you know. So we so I think there's always been a range. What has not always been there is that the most radical parts of feminist movements and also of queer movements have been erased in historiography. So today it doesn't look like that. Um, and it, that vision of things is now being revised. In terms of anti-imperial work, for example, anti-imperialist work in the United States, uh, right now I would just give the example of uh, feminists within indigenous movements who are talking not about repatriating the land, but rather rematriating the land. Um, I would think, you know, that something like what's happening with in uh, Abiyala, meaning, or what the colonizers call Latin America. In Abiyala, there is uh, Feminismo Comunitario, which is um, communitarian feminism, which is a form of indigenous feminism to reorganize societies in a, according to you know, a, a, an egalitarian uh, indigenous manner. So we have all sorts of different developments happening um, here in, in 
Turtle Island, which is of course the indigenous name that, for what the colonizers call the United States. And, um, and it is, and all sorts of things happening in, in Abyayala and elsewhere across the globe as well. So both feminist and queer movements are in this case of deep anti-imperialism, um, anti-racism, etc. So, and it also has to do with the people who are, who are actually running these movements. But as I said, we find an entire gamut of things happening, everything from some conservative stuff that, you know, to me is quite horrifying to um, the more, much more radical and critical um, kinds of movements. And in terms of uh, much more, um, uh, uh, far right wing of feminism, you refer to, for instance, Islamophobia? Yes, well, I mean, I, I think France is probably one of the most dramatic articulations is happening in France right now because uh, there's a, there is a significant proportion of white feminists who are deeply Islamophobic and who um, have actually are just reproducing colonial discourses on uh, Muslim men as you know, there's a colonial discourse about Muslim men as the most sexist and um, and 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 what Gayatri Spivak refers to as this white men saving brown women from brown men is more like, you know, white women saving brown women, Muslim women from Muslim men kind of a configuration happening. And, um, and there we're seeing in France, I think of the you know, something really dramatic in terms of the Islamophobia. Um, it has always been there, but it's even right now, it's much more articulated. That also exists in the United States. It's a reproduction of certain kinds of colonial discourses and Orientalist discourses. Um, it, the, it, it's, I think it exists in lots of countries and it is a part of the right wing. Uh, you know, Colette Guillaumin, in the French context, someone who who is not always remembered, but who wrote uh, a book called Racist Ideology in 1972 in France, um, and who was actually, a, who was in a part of the feminist movement, Colette Guillaumin also wrote that um, racism is a right-wing, no, sexism is a right-wing component of, of any discourse, right or left. And I would say that similarly, racism and Islamophobia are right-wing discourses, and they're also colonial discourses of any, uh, whether it's coming from the right or the left. So we have a whole left in France, left articulation of racism and Islamophobia. And I would say that it is a right-wing element of the left. But it's also a colonial element of the left. And there we get again into this question of how um, colonialism and, and right wings and, and fascisms are deeply entwined. Yeah, this is absolutely correct, uh, Paola. Uh, one of the most uh, significant critique against decolonial thinking in France came basically from the left. And they pretended that the decolonial thinking is a is a is a derivative of uh, 
New American, therefore neoliberal, post-colonial studies that have nothing to do with the with France. And uh, the big uh, relation we can make here between what you were saying about the denial of what has happening, what what has happened in the seventies with the feminist alliances, etc., is that the very same theory that have been the ground for uh, decolonial studies in America, in the U.S., for instance, have been developed in France in the fifties by Fanon, by Aimé Césaire, by Édouard Glissant, by uh, I mean Sanger. And I think it's incredible to see that today, in 221, the French left are saying, no, these, we are not decolonial. These ideas come from America. They come from American universities. You know what I mean? I do. And, and you know, it's quite ironic, in fact, that um, every, okay, post-colonial theory and decolonial theory, of course, are two different theorizations, sets of theorizations, although they intersect at certain points. And um, they're developed in two different geographical areas of the world. However, all of them have as their basis exactly what you just said, which is, you know, Fanon, Césaire, Senghor, everyone. And it is incredibly, you know, I think that they, they that without that, also Said, but, you know, without, uh, without all of all of that prior thinking, they would be nowhere. And that is the basis actually of so much. So we have, um, you know, post-colonial theory coming mainly out of, out of India and parts of Africa, and then uh, decolonial theory in its most developed form coming out of Abhyayala. And it is, does not come from the United States. It is coming from other geographical areas and then imported into the United States. So that is often forgotten in the discussion. What about it was uh, from the United States? Nothing, really. I mean, it came from South Asia and from Africa and from Abhyayala. And then it now, just because the academy has been able to make a little place for it, but you should see where, what kind of place it has in the U.S. academy. So post-colonial theory is just fine as long as folks are discussing India and, and the British, you know, Britain and, and India, uh, and British colonialism. Post-colonial theory has not been used to talk about the U.S. as a settler colony. Neither has decolonial theory so much, you see. So as long as, as these in the United States, they become acceptable within the academy as long as they're not interrogating the United States. So th this claim on the part of France, um, you know, the French left is very ironic in multiple ways, in the way that you mentioned, which is that, you know, the fundamental, absolutely basic um, knowledge production that happened by uh, French and Francophone authors that are the basis of so much of this, of both post-colonial and decolonial theory, but also the fact that it was that neither of them had their initial development in the US. They were they are they were imported. That doesn't mean that there's no decolonial or anti-colonial theory in the US. There's tons of it, but it has also been ignored. We don't have, for example, um, any real school of thought 
that's organized as a configuration within the academy that is coming out of, for example, the Puerto Rican independence movement or Native American movement. We have Native American studies and we have Latin American studies, not Abiyala studies, for example. Um, and so this is also very significant about what can and cannot be uh, brought into the academy in the United States or anywhere. So I, all, I do find the situation in France extremely ironic. Um, it's of course much more complex. I mean, it, I, it, when you have a country that outlaws um, the veil and, and, when, and when you have a country that, um, that passes a law about how colonialism is supposed to be taught, you know, with that law on the, that, that colonialism needed to be taught by uh, putting France in a positive light as though there's something positive about colonialism, even though it was later uh, repealed. I think that there's a problem there, but the US also has an enormous problem of not wanting to take a look at itself as a settler colony that is currently a settler colony. It's not like that's the past, you know? And also it doesn't want to take a look at itself as um, a slavery and post-slavery context in which slavery is part of the determining factor of institutions, including prisons, um, but also universities, who's in and who's out of universities, how things, who built the built this country up and then gets erased out of it. So, you know, I think that in both places, uh, both places, they don't want to take a look at um, at what at, at these at, at this historical context and how it bears on the present and how it's still present. It is co-present with us. It's not history that's in the past, you know. No, thank you very much, Paula. And I completely agree that um when you were mentioning the name uh, Abiyala, the fact that the decolonial discourse in American university most of the time has been ev evacuating the fact that the um, United States is a, is, a, is, a, is a colony of settlement and uh, always like addressing the decolonial question either through American, I mean, South American uh, thinkers such as Mignolo or Dussel or others. And then, uh, or, or Said related to the Middle East, or or, or the European uh, legacy of uh, colonial empires, you know. But in the end, the crucial, and I'm really happy that you remind us that, I mean, uh, the United States by itself, by definition, is is built on a genocide of uh, of, of of peoples, and on a total denial of this uh, 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 responsibility and narrative. Uh, today, I didn't know that the Abiyala, which is which is the the native name of Earth, right? It is the native name for that for the part of for the part of the Earth where um, made that that is currently called Latin America. Yes, and it does just mean it means world, the Earth world, but it is um, the plate the name of the place, and also in most. Yeah, but um, so it just is that part of the world, means that part of the world. And, you know, it's interesting because if, you, if when I am in Abiyala and speaking with people, the, they are very often refer to the entire continent as, uh, you know, North and South as Abiyala, which is interesting because there is a name given by people in 
the north of this continent to the space in which, um, you know, in, in, to the northern space itself. So, which is Turtle Island. And so even there, we have a conversation needs to take place about, you know, what are what is being defined and who's defining it. Um, and what does it mean to, um, you know, to, to respect the self-definition of the people who actually live there, you know, who are from there. So, yeah, I mean, the United States is all fine with having decolonial theory and post-colonial theory as long as it doesn't really uh, change anything about U.S. colonialism or about capitalism or any of the other configurations of relations of power uh, in the U.S. Thank you very much, Paola, and I really uh, hope to see you soon uh, at our symposium in uh, in Berlin uh, in uh, in the in the summer. We will have nice time normally. Thank you so much, Kadir, and thank you to everyone who organized this conversation.